Welcome to the Archives of The Laura Lee Show, conversation for exploration, timeless discussions to challenge and expand our worldview. And while you may find our guests fascinating, the views expressed may not necessarily reflect those of our own or of the Kuimange Institute. That's why we call it conversation for exploration. And join in our ongoing live events, interviews, our own presentations, and much, much more as we go exploring. Learn more at kuiamungainstitute.com and lauralee.com. Welcome to Conversation for Exploration. Hi, I'm your host, Laura Lee. There's so much I appreciate about our guests today. Lady scientist, I always appreciate this one, again, immersed in her work, like more scientists should be, and uh, dealing with interspecies communication. I think we should be talking with the other beings on our planet and the universe at large. And uh, let me welcome Alexandra Morton. She is a scientist who listens to the whales, looking at how they communicate amongst themselves. Her book is Listening to Whales, What the Orcas Have Taught Us. She also has a couple of children's books, Sewitty, A Whale Story, and In the Company of Whales from the Diary of a Whale Watcher. Get your children appreciating this intelligent and fascinating species as well. She joins us here in the studio, visiting from Echo Bay, British Columbia. Alexandra, hi and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I understand that you've worked with John Lilly uh, mm-hmm. early on, and your inspiration was Jane Goodall, what she did for chimpanzees you've been doing with the orca. What was your inspiration to go into science as a girl and then to focus on the cetaceans? Well, as a child, um, I was somewhat odd, I think, in that... Uh, oh, good, another one. Yeah. I, uh, I was fascinated by animals. And in New England, the greatest wild animal community are the reptiles and amphibians. And so I spent my childhood in ponds and streams and marshes and looked under rocks and, and pieces of bark. And as I approached, you know, teenage years, hit about 11, it became painfully aware that the other girls weren't doing this. And I was quite certain I was going to have to quit looking at animals until Jane Goodall appeared on the cover of National Geographic. I'm saved. I don't have to look at boys quite yet. Yeah, exactly. Well, the only other woman scientist that I'd ever seen a picture of was Madame Curie. And she was just a little frightening, you know. Um, (laughs) And look what happened to her. (laughs) Those x-rays. Yes, but Goodall, she was beautiful. She was brave. She was intelligent and uh, was making discoveries about animals that really rocked the world. You know, she found elements of their society which we had always thought exclusively belonged to humans. So she opened a door to me, and really it was just like a ray of light, and I realized I could do this as an adult. And then I came across the writings of Dr. John Lilly. Now, he was a neurophysiologist who started to prod around in the brain of dolphins. Some were living dolphins. But he realized that everything that we consider is better about our brain over the chimpanzees and the gorillas, the dolphins had over us. And what were those parameters? Um, the convolution of the neocortex, the, the surface that covers the brain. The more had convoluted, more folds. the more surface area. That's mm-hmm. right. And cetaceans have more than we do, or dolphins in particular. Yes, that's right. And uh, the uh, frontal lobes, which we associate with higher thought, they had more developed than we did. Um, some of the more primitive portions of the brain were smaller in proportion. Um, and so this began to worry him that perhaps he was harming an animal that was sentient. And so he actually responded quite dramatically and maybe went, well, many many in the scientific community think he went too far the other direction and began to theorize on what a marine intelligent might look like. So I read his books. And while Goodall opened the door, Lily gave me a compass because the primates just, for whatever reasons, didn't attract me, but the dolphins did. What was that about them? Uh, it probably was their smile <laughs> um, because I was raised in the mountains. I had no experience with the water or any of her creatures in the seawater. 
So uh, I'm from a family of artists and uh, thinkers and began making my living in the art world and moved to Los Angeles, still earning my living in art, but looking for how I was going to complete my education and point myself towards a career working with animals. And Dr. John Lilly gave a lecture, and I went to it, and I thought, I've got to work with this man. So I... How do you engineer something like that? Well, I did him a very strange drawing. It was a, a overlay of a dolphin and a human face sharing the same mind. And I you knew what would appeal to this man. Yes, that's right. And I sent that to him and then followed it up with a phone call. And uh, he answered the phone. And I, I ended up getting the opportunity to paint a mural in their hallway uh, for free. And one day when I was doing this, the back door in the hall was open. And out of it was pouring this cold air. Now, in Southern California, you're trained to close doors like that and keep this expensive cold air in. So I went to do that, and I saw all these tapes, hundreds and hundreds of tapes that were of his work in the Virgin Islands trying to teach dolphins to speak English. So I asked Dr. Lilly at the end of the day, I said, could I listen to those tapes? He's a very austere man. He goes, no. And I said, well, uh, do you need someone to catalog them? He said, well, yeah, actually we do. And so I said, well, could I listen to them while I catalog them? And he said, yes. And it took two years of Sundays. I'd go up every Sunday, all day, and just plunge into this underwater world. And it was actually a very good introduction because I had no visuals, just the sound. And the dolphins themselves are a creature based on sound. Whereas the majority of our brain, sensory part of our brain, is devoted to sight, for them it's sound. But I quickly learned that while I was interested in the experiments and teaching dolphins to speak English... And I have to ask you what was on those tapes in a minute, but go ahead. Right. While I was interested in, in the, the tapes about him trying to teach dolphins English, what really interested me was dolphins talking to dolphins. Mm -hmm. And so... I shortly after that left his organization and began to just work with the dolphins themselves. You know, I would think, gosh, we speak English. And I know my dog tries to talk to me. He's doing his best to form the language back to us and imitate to us. He's, he's trying to meet us halfway. But they don't have the physiology to form the same words. He's very good at, oh, you know, which yes. we do with him. But how would you expect a dolphin to create an English sound? I mean, birds can mimic English. Right because they're very good mimics. How would you expect a dolphin to form English, or would you expect them to, you know, push buttons? Or how was he trying to teach them English? Well, And wouldn't it do better for us to try to imitate their sounds with our technology and to communicate with them that way? He eventually got there. But in the beginning, and this was in the late 50s, he um, simply tried English because he knew they made a rich repertoire of sounds. But it turns out dolphins can't make vowel sounds. So, um, but they can make the consonants. They can make the consonants. That's oh, right. So they sounded a lot like Donald Duck, which was pretty pathetic. But the dolphins would spontaneously try to initiate conversations. They clearly knew the value of words. And um, he did an experiment where he had a young woman actually live in the tank with a young dolphin. And this was uncomfortable for both species. But they were drawn together for contact. And uh, so this woman, Margaret, would walk in, and, and Peter the dolphin would go, hi, like that. And he okay. was trying to say hi. And he'd go, Margaret, like that. He oh would try to gosh. say her, her, her name. So it was just a physiological mismatch, though, because dolphins yeah. don't actually have vocal cords. They have this wondrous tree of air Low hole. And, yes. Yeah. So later after I left, he did try to use technology to teach them a coded language that they could produce. Um, Did he get very far on that? No, he personally didn't because the scientific world basically cut him off because he was too controversial. But uh, others have gone Cutting forward. off in terms of cutting off the grant money? Cutting and, off funding. That's yeah. right. You know, he did experiment with LSD and drugs like that and um, sensory deprivation. And so the scientific community just thought he'd gone way too far. And what was your opinion on that? Well... It was very sad to see because he's a brilliant, brilliant man. He just recently died. But he um, he scared them because scientists have this thing about being the most intelligent form of life on Earth. 
Oh, they felt threatened that the dolphins might. Mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of it. And some of them felt that uh, Lily's work was actually harmful to uh, foster this kind of belief in people that there might be something with answers out there other than the scientists themselves. So, um, and he went, he went too far without data. And that was their main criticism. I mean, that was their, that's how they verbalized it. But I think they were threatened by it. Don't you have to have a vision in order to gather up the data to build that bridge to see if the yes. vision is correct? Yes, I truly believe that. And I think most great science um, has fallen into that pattern. Did you keep in contact with Lily through those uh, other years? Afterwards? I did a little bit, but um, I had so many questions for him and he was unable to answer them. So we did drift apart. Mm-hmm. But then what happened when you left his organization? Well, I went to a local oceanarium and asked them if I could study their dolphins. And there was a tank of about eight dolphins. And they viewed me with great skepticism because Lily was anti-captivity. And so it was very kind of them to let me in. Now, did you have the degrees and the credentials? Did no. they bother with that? Or were there anybody who wanted to volunteer and spend some time and contribute? Were they happy well, to... Well, the science was so young. ...to talk your way in? I did have to talk my way in. This is an inspiration to others who, you know, want to forge their paths. Mm-hmm. How do you get across obstacles? Well, I would recommend the educational route, but really the science was so young then, there were no programs in this. And so I uh, said, told them what I wanted to do, and um turns out the park was closing for a year and they actually saw me as a source of entertainment for the dolphins oh i and see we won't have people for them to interact with so that's right and we so need people to just play with them hang. yeah because um they knew i wanted to listen to the dolphins and record their behavior but then just as i was leaving they said oh and would you mind swimming with them Gee, I know. think I can do that. I was just about jumped into their arms and hugged them. I was, I was just so thrilled. So uh, it was, you know, I had to go through the whole process of finding the equipment and getting it together and then finding out how to drop a hydrophone into a tank full of dolphins because they tried to grab it and take it, and they did a couple of times. What did you come up with? I went to the hardware store and I got a clamp that you used to glue boards together and a tube and wires and and just clamped this thing onto the wall. (laughs) It was a blend of rigidness and flexibility that seemed to work with them. Okay. And um, had a lot of fun swimming with them. They were always testing me, particularly the young adults. How so? Well, this one young male would come and snag me uh, under the armpit with his dorsal fin. And so I'd slide my hand down and grab his dorsal fin, and he just loved that. And he'd start racing around the tank, but he'd keep me on the surface. So the water's frothing past my mask, and he'd get to the tank wall, and he'd go, and down, and I'd go, smuck, right into the wall. And he'd come back, he'd come ripping right back and just look at me (laughs) with this devilish eye. So I learned to put one hand forward on his body and one hand on the dorsal so I could feel him going down. I'd tuck down with him. So then he'd take me down to the bottom and he'd start going really slow. And he'd look back and I'm quite certain he was saying, so how long can you hold your breath? Because I think this might be Let's explore the limits between humans and dolphins. Exactly. Uh And our superiority, by the way, right? Uh, yeah. He's saying to himself. Yes. Oh, yes. He just he couldn't believe what a floundering thing I was. So uh, one day, the killer whale at the Oceanarium gave birth. And prior to that, I'd always seen the orcas as being boring because I'd pass that tank and they'd just be floating there side by side like a couple of rubber tires. The dolphins, meanwhile, were exhausting me. At the end of the day with the dolphins, trying to describe every behavior I saw was it's, I mean, it sounded like I was calling out a horse race or maybe like five horse races. <laughs> it's just this constant stream of verbiage, and I'm always a little behind. Were you recording this, writing down? What were you I started writing it down, but I quickly switched to recording. So one track of the tape recorder was my voice, and the other track was their voice. Oh, I see. And so the two were married together right from the beginning. I knew what sounds, what, with, what mm-hmm. behaviors, but... There was a mother and a baby, so they might be involved in nursing. And then there was a bunch of aggressive males, and they might be uh, doing a little dominance thing. And then there was the kids that might be playing with a ball, and I didn't know what sound went with what behavior. Mm -hmm. So I was frustrated that way. I found some wonderful people to help me. Um, I was very lucky that way, Uh, some people with technology and some statistical background. What they do? 
for you? Well, the one fellow uh, was just a whiz with computers, and you know, I said, I said, John, this, these these dolphins are just too fast for me. And he said, it's okay, Alex, we'll slow them down for you. So he worked on the Paramount Studio lot, and uh, actually helped shoot movies like um, Star Wars and Star Trek because he had a, a camera system that could put people into model spaceships and things like oh, that. Boy. Yeah, it was very fun. But we'd go after hours, and I would just spend hours and hours and hours on his computer trying to just catalog the sounds in a few minutes of this dolphin experience. They just, they're so high speed. Because you were saying, what is the language they're speaking to themselves and they're emitting that are associated with particular activities? That's right. Okay. So their their calls are all whistles. So it'd be sort of like that. And they go very fast. But when you slow it down, it'd be woo, and you can follow how many times it goes up and how many times it goes down. And you found consistency. So when they're playing, they do this. When they're mating, they do that. When they're feeding, they do this. Something like that. But it, because of the chaos of the number of dolphins, it didn't work. So then I moved to the, the orca tank and watched a, an amazing series of events where the female gave birth, lost the baby. Really, I mean, I, I know as a scientist you shouldn't say this, but she went into mourning and then came out of that. And that... Turned out, why can't we? Why can't scientists? No, oh, we're getting make there. Make those observations. We're getting there, but, or but I'm supposed to prove that she was mourning and that we know that she was mourning. You're supposed to always have proof, and, and that's a good thing about science. But you always have to keep the lid of the box open. But what she did was she would grab a breath full of air and go down to the bottom of the tank, and she she'd say this. She go just over and over for three days and nights. And the male, meanwhile, was circling above her, and every now and then he'd go, like that. And I didn't know what any of this meant, but I wrote it all down, recorded it. And just before dawn on the third morning, she answered him with the call that he was making. And she rose up to swim beside him, and they breathed together and started to swim around the tank in the early light of dawn, back and forth. And that call is actually the most interesting call I've ever worked with, with the orca. As a matter of fact, you know, that's where I'm applying all of my energy and time right now is to just that call. Because over the years, it confused me. It occurred on that morning. It occurs when whales are starting a conversation in general or stopping a conversation. It also occurs when they're turning around or watching a birth. So I'm thinking, what? possibly do all these different behaviors in both captivity and the wild have to do with each other well it finally came to me one night lying in bed synchrony anytime the whales are focused on the same thing whether it's talking together or observing something or trying to navigate they do this call and an exchange back and forth an exchange back and forth exactly and Synchrony is a major, major thread through the lives of whales. When you're studying something like this, it's like mining, and you come across a small vein, and you don't know whether that's going to blossom into the mother load or it's just a little pocket. Well, synchrony was the mother load with whales. When I saw a birth, after many years of trying to see one, the thing that struck me was that the baby whale didn't know when to breathe or where to breathe or how to breathe, because... If you're a little whale and you breathe at the wrong time, you're dead. You're drown. Mm-hmm. That's right. So it became apparent that in the DNA of the orca is the message, breathe with mom. Synchrony. Synchrony. Timing. And so that breathing together, that's right. It starts right then from the whale's first breath, and it's a theme through their whole lives. So since it's genetically embedded or instinctively embedded, mm-hmm. then that would carry through their entire communication with the one another their entire through life, the communication through their, so deeply embedded yes through behaviors um and so the exchange of the calls would be where what we're tracking one another mm-hmm. like you got it roger got it yes i'm over here i'm over here i'm over here but the really fascinating thing about the whales calls is not only can they uh locate each other and hear but two whales separated by say half a kilometer of water that call back and forth by listening to each other they can actually see what's between them or so we believe okay 
Well, let me ask you first to diverge a little bit about the distance that their calls can carry. I understand that there is a uh, grid of water temperature and clarity and salinity, which if they find the right layer of water, they can call and it can travel for miles. Something to do with... The SOFAR channel. Whatever. The SOFAR. How do you spell that? S-O-F-A-R. Are you talking about that, that they could see through that, or just with any water, any layer of water? Well, I I have not gotten down to that level with my hydrophone. I just have not reached those depths. Oh, okay, okay. But, and and generally, that um, form of communication, that long, long-distance communication... Humpbacks or other yes, species is assigned to the large mm-hmm. baleen whales. Okay. Like a, a humpback can give a call off Nova Scotia and find Bermuda. Things like that. I mean, it's really miraculous what they can do. But in the in the orca, I personally have heard them ten miles away. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and I'm imagining that they can hear much farther because my hydrophone, you know, it isn't even a top quality piece of equipment, and they, their acoustic abilities are amazing. I mean, their whole lower jaw is an ear. Their whole lower, lower jaw, jaw is an ear. It's a great big antenna. It's filled with oil. It's and, the right shape, isn't it? Yes, Long that's right. Era. That's right. Yeah. And that bulb on their head, if you look at their skull, their skull goes the other way. It's actually like a, a bowl. So a it's dish. creating a cavity, a That's resonant right. cavity chamber. There's there's these sacks of oil of different density. Mm-hmm. And it and then they've got these it's just amazing. They've got these ping pong paddles of air sacs that reflect and point that sound outward and the sound penetrates this oil which as it gets closer to the skin of the whale simulates more closely the density of seawater so that sound never has to puncture a barrier it's just a gradual takeoff into the water and that's why it can travel so far oh how it it never meets a wall of impedance no it just gradually goes out density wise that's right. And carries forward. That's right. And I talk wow. about this in the book because this is not my research, but I collect the research of a lot of people. Um, the other thing they have, okay, so they have this big antenna. They've got a sound amplification dish. Oh, and they dish. can change the shape of it in order to focus. That's right, with these, the, with these air sac paddles that are inside. emit these various vibrations and sonar waves. Okay. That's right. They also have an enormous nerve connection between their ears and the higher level thought portion of their brain. Which means that they can translate those sound waves and detect the information embedded in them and read a lot into it. That's right. They're definitely reading a lot into those sounds. Our nerve connection is tiny. It's a wee thread. They have this super speed cable. Okay. They've got the high speed internet connection. Exactly. Exactly. And um, so this lets me know right off the bat that I'm never actually going to figure out their sounds entirely. I just don't have the equipment. But I can piece things together. And, And that's what I've been doing. But after watching the captive whales for about two and a half years, I became concerned that they were somewhat deficient or insane or incomplete. Because of their very captivity? Well, what the thing that, that struck me was they couldn't raise a baby. This poor female kept giving birth to these healthy calves. She adored them. Her entire focus was on those babies as long as they were alive, but she didn't know how to feed them. And with a primate, you pick up your baby, you cuddle it, and it's going to find milk on its own because it's within inches of the breast. But the orca mammaries are way down by the tail. And what we know now is it takes another female. To push the baby down uh, there. So she didn't, she wasn't insane. She didn't have the auntie there to assist. She, and she also didn't know where that calf was supposed to go. She was caught as a baby herself. She just, uh, she just because had, it's a transmission of knowledge from one generation yes. to the next. Yes. It's a learned behavior. Yes, that's right. Oh, so, um, and she had ground down her teeth on the cement. Um, because of stress and because anxiety of captivity. and frustration. Yeah. Oh, God. And uh, and so I thought, boy, you know, maybe her language isn't complete. Maybe Lily was right. Maybe Lily was right. Um, and so at the same time, there was a researcher in Canada that had discovered that every family of orca speaks a slightly different dialect. And I was now all of 20 and spent two whole years studying killer whales, which I thought was a long time. So I was quite concerned about taking all of this knowledge I had about the sounds of these two whales in captivity 
into the wild with me. Because you felt this is a different dialect that they're speaking, or what? No, I felt that I didn't want to start all over with a new dialect. I wanted to work with the same set of sounds. So I had to find their family. Now, this sounds impossible, but it turned out to be quite easy because another Canadian researcher, Dr. Michael Big... Oh, you had to find the family that your captive whales came from exactly. in order to stay within the same dialect. Yes. Okay. That's right. And uh, Dr. Big was out photographing all the whales of British Columbia, trying to count them for the government, because with all the whale captures, the government realized this was now a fishery, and they had to find a sustainable catch level. So this young scientist was out photographing, counting the whales, and he discovered that they live in families. He discovered that they don't separate and he also looked at pictures of the whales from years ago from the captures. And the whale, the female whale I was working with, Corky, she was snuggled up to an adult female called A23 or Stripe. Because they have very specific markings. So very you can identify specific them. markings. That's right. Oh Every dorsal gosh. fin's a little different. Oh my gosh. And so I called Dr. Big and I said, you don't happen to know where Orky and Corky are from. And he was wonderful. He was just so willing to share his knowledge. He goes, sure. He said, sure. He said, Go to Johnson Straits in August. I'll send you the pictures of her family, and you'll find them there. Well, he did. He sent me these Xeroxes, and I set off with those to find her family. You're adventurous. Yeah. Well, you know, 20 at 20 years old, <laughs> you're more likely to take risks. And... uh that first evening up there, I had so much stuff in the boat. We were sort of perched on top of looked like a laundry basket. And we're tied to the dock, and suddenly we hear whale blows. And there in the sunset are some whales. And I dropped the hydrophone, and it was exactly the family I was looking for. It was the same calls. And we will continue the adventures of this lady scientist, Alexandra Morton, uh, her search for listening to the whales and uh, what they have to teach us when we come back. Her book, Listening to Whales, What the Orcas Have Taught Us, and two children's books. And uh, we return. I'm Laura Lee. Laura Lee Online. www.lauralee.com Let's continue our conversation with Alexandra Morton. Her books, Listening to Whales, What the Orcas Have Taught Us, and two children's books. So you found the family of the whales. I did. I'm sensing and family reunion coming up here. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the first thing that really struck me was the beauty and the size of their sounds. I had always heard their sounds in a tank with the sound of the drain going. But suddenly these same calls were just rolling on and on and actually filling 100 square miles each call with echoes. And the other thing that struck me was the uh, the beauty of seeing the young and healthy babies, because I had seen one after the next die in captivity. And I felt very sad that it was me there instead of that female whale, because I know that she should have been the one to come back. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, your work then in listening to them, finding out what they're doing, some of the uh, astonishing discoveries that you've made, then what? What was the next chapter? Well, when I first arrived to British Columbia and started studying whales, I only saw the whales. I had no idea about the um, environment in which they lived. And gradually over the years, my focus has been pulling back and widening out and widening out. Now, whales How are, do they interact with their entire environment? Yeah, and, and what's normal to a whale? What's different? What are they expecting? When is something surprising to them? How and do they negotiate that environment? That's well? right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And it's difficult to study whales because they're underwater so much, and it's even more difficult to study the animals that they feed on, mostly fish, because you don't see them at all. But everything does leave tracks. Herring, for example, leave a fine sheen of bubbles at dawn and at sunset. And so if you're going out and looking for six ton of herring, you can find them from the surface. So it was this sort of fine tuning with my own vision and perception that had to go on. Um, I had to learn to live in the wilderness. I started out as a young single woman and then 
married and, and became a mother. And then my husband drowned. And so I was on my own with a small child. And so this was a long learning process that interrupted the work for quite a bit of time. Um, Wales led us to our home, which is a tiny community of 40 people. That's including the babies. And it, most of the houses are on logs floating. So it's, it's as marine an environment as I could find. I wanted to put myself in the path of the whales to encounter them as much as possible. I put an underwater microphone out in front of my house and it plays 24 hours a day inside the house so that I can hear them passing, whether it's night or day. So you can hit uh, record whenever you <coughs> That's want to right. capture some sound as well. That's right. And at night, it allows me, I can still identify which pod it is, you know, while I can't see them. If there's no whales around, does it pick up um, the sounds of other creatures as It well? does. It, I can hear um, codfish grunting. They're very sweet. What do they sound like? They're sort of... And then otters sound like this, because they're swimming. Uh, kayakers go drip, 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 drip with their paddles. Uh, but mostly what I hear is motorboats. <coughs> okay. <laughs> yes. And um, I was surprised at how many fish spoke. We were at the... Um, Ocean Center in Maui recently, and they had uh, buttons you could push for recordings of some of the oh, tropical wonderful. reef fish, and they're, you know, just yes. a lot of interesting little calls there. Yes, there's a lot okay. of communication by sound. Because the ocean's a good medium for sound to carry, just like our ocean of air is here. That's right. Actually, yeah. the water's even better. The sound travels faster and farther. Um, I also hear Pacific white-sided dolphins, which sound like monkeys on helium. A friend described it that way, and it's just right. It's this very fluttery, high-pitched chatter. And uh, so I needed to just expect, I, I learned to expect what was going on. You know, I learned to expect the ulican and the herring and the Chinook salmon and then the waves of pink salmon, and I knew when the whales should be there. And if they didn't show up for a run of salmon, it was usually due to the loss of a family member. That really would slow them down in showing up. I don't know whether they linger with the member as they're dying or whether they just mill in a for a period of time after they're gone, sort of aimlessly. hold their funeral rites, in effect. Something. Um, matter of fact, the whole issue of family is tremendous uh, with the orca. If you've got, for example, we had two brothers, and when their mom died, they had no sisters. So they basically were on their own, and they did not live for very long. Hmm. Uh, for this reason, the life expectancy of a male orca is much shorter than the females because when their mother dies, they just seem to lose their will to live. They oh lose their family. Now, if How did they die? They just stop eating or just... I don't know. They just Killer whales are so hard to see after they've died. They generally just vanish. They just sink to the bottom and... Provide food for the next sink or float and decompose. I mean, th that coastline is so huge. It's not like the shorelines of Puget Sound where everything will be found. It's just, you know, there's, there's so many miles where there's no people. So, um, it became, it began, their environment of the killer whales began to look like a living system, a single organism. Sometimes I just sit in front of my house and I just try to spread my awareness out over the whole place and just feel the whole thing. And of course I can't get very far before it snaps, but it's, it's this, these rivers of life. You've got the herring coming in that are supporting all these species. You've got the salmon that are out collecting the product of photosynthesis over thousands of square miles. Eating the plankton. That's right. And carrying it right back up the mountainsides. Oh, when they go up to spawn. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then you have the orca at the very pinnacle of the food chain there. And so watching the top predator of any ecosystem, you gradually become aware of all the players underneath. Hmm. You know, what's startling to me um, is about how cruel the killer whales are as well. We watched a documentary in which the killer, a pot of killer whales were following a humpback whale uh, mother and its newborn calf. And it just looked like a hunting party out for sport. They were following it and then going for miles until the poor mother was worn out. She was trying to race ahead. And then her defenses uh, created an opening for them to grab the baby. And they, all they ate was the tongue of the baby. And then they left the rest of it 
uh, it's like, okay, that's all we wanted. It was like a sporting game and this was the prize and they weren't even going to eat the rest of it. It's like, oh my gosh. So this poor mother and they commented, spent 18 months in gestation and then yeah. caring for this baby and then, you know, just to see it destroyed for a tongue. Um, and then, uh, watching the killer whales for two weeks when they go to the coastline where the baby seals are born mm-hmm. and then they, how they go up and grab it right off mm-hmm. the coast and then they sp- play with it like a ball until it's dead and then continue to play with it, tossing it in the air uh, and all of that. So the side, that side of them, your comments. Um, I I know that dolphins can be very aggressive. The males, dolphins are extremely aggressive. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I know nature has this side. Yeah. It explains it in us, but no, I was devastated the first time um, I saw them playing with their food. Actually, um some of the orcas will even kill birds and not eat them at all i how do they catch a seagull uh, they're generally diving the diving birds, the diving birds yeah. <clears throat> and they bat them around with their tails um it's generally someone who's bored and waiting for the rest of the gang to catch up with them huh. or they're just in a really <laughs> wild <Sassy> mood <laughs> yes um but the whale population, the orca population, split into two very distinct societies. There's the mammal eaters, and they're the ones involved in these types of kills. And then there's the fish eaters, and they will only eat oh, fish. Interesting. It's really a startling uh, sympatric development of two. Um, normally, this kind of separation only happens when the geography keeps an animal apart. But in this case, these two groups are side by side in the same waters and actually have a different culture based on what they eat. The culture of the um, fish or the orca that eat fish, they can be loud, gregarious, large groups, very predictable movements because they're right on those salmon. The mammal eaters have to be quiet because the dolphins and seals are listening Mm -hmm. for them. They have to keep their group size five or less. It's a law with them. And their movements are erratic because they have other reasons for going places because seals are found everywhere all year round. So, and do they only eat mammals or do they eat fish? Only eat mammals. There was a group of them caught, and I describe this in great length in the book, but they were captured and put in a net pen, and one of them actually died. And she starved to death. Because she wouldn't eat the fish. She would not eat the fish. But her son grasped the situation, went to the person who was feeding them, took a large salmon from this person, went over to his sister and got her to bite the tail. And the two of them swam around the enclosure, one holding onto the head of the fish, one holding onto the tail, and they broke it in half and they ate it and then began to eat fish. There's other situations where a fish eater is put into captivity with a mammal eater, and the fish eater will actually show the mammal eater that you can eat fish, will actually take the fish and press it up against their mouths. And do they take it and then learn? Yes. yes. And, and all these cultures. That's right. They become very mixed up with their language and, and all their behaviors. So um, there's a lot of thought that goes on within whales, and they do not want to be left alone. And they clearly figure out ways to keep the rest of their group alive. Interesting. Wow. Um, <laughs> so um, do the various societies, the whale eaters and the uh, mammal eaters, get along? When the fish eaters and the mammal eaters? Yeah, the whale no. eaters, the fish eaters and the mammal eaters when they're side by side in the same waters? Um, they coexist, but it's not a friendly situation. Sometimes all the fish eaters will get out of the way and back into a small bay. Sometimes the mammal eaters will back. Sometimes they'll so just, they're trying to avoid each other? They, yeah, it's like opposite magnets. They kind of just, you know, oh, okay. oh, get by each other with a maximum distance. There was one case where fish eaters actually attacked mammal eaters, and we believe it's because the fish eaters had a brand new baby, and they did not want these mammal eaters hanging around. Because the baby would have been prey, potentially. Yes, I think that might be the source of the animosity between the two groups, because we've had we've seen a number of times where the mammal eaters are right on the tail of a pod with a brand new baby. Oh, and, okay. um, and, and that along. would be one of the little whale in, in, um, Seattle area's biggest risks would be experience the with the mammal eaters. Boy. 
So I'm assuming that in the sea parks that keep orca, they've taken the orca from the fish eaters, not the mammal eaters. They've mixed them up. Oh. And surprisingly enough, when they're thrown into that stressful of a situation, they get along. There's there's no records that I know of of any kind of But they're not looking at the humans that are diving with them going, hmm, mammal. Oh, well, yeah, I know. that There have been cases. Uh, well, there was one case in Victoria where some young orca from Iceland actually killed a, a young woman who was their trainer. And uh, they could very possibly have been from a mammal-eating group. We don't know because we don't know their societies there. So it has happened. Oh, they don't study to see from which group it is before they capture them? Because I would no, think... No, they didn't know anything about it. And actually people who are in, in, insisting on diving with killer whales, most of them probably just haven't encountered any mammal-eaters. But it would be very unwise to jump in the water with them. Right. Yeah. How many people um, are killed by killer whales? There is no uh, verified report of anyone being killed by a wild killer whale. There was one fellow grabbed by killer whales, but it was in a situation where there was California sea lions that are black. Mm -hmm. This man was wearing a black wetsuit. They were in surf. And the whale... Misidentification. Yeah. Well, the whale grabbed him and let him go, and the man lived and kept all his legs and arms. So the whale did not grab him hard. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've, we've been very lucky that way, and... To tell you the truth, I'm not entirely sure why there hasn't been an accident like that. People are out there among um, mammal eaters in kayaks quite often, and I aren't you safe in a kayak though? No, oh no, these these whales can toss around thousand pound sea lions, so they could pick up the kayak if they chose and toss definitely. It around. Oh yeah, definitely. That that was one of the greatest uh, dawnings of awareness I had when I it really defined the terms of our relationship. The first time I saw one of these kills, I realized. Uh, I was totally at their mercy. And I've been charged by Orca, who um, got angry at me for getting too close to take pictures of new babies. Were and you diving in the water? No, I was in my boat. And How, how big of a boat? Uh, 22 feet, but just a little fiberglass boat, weighs about the same as a sea lion. When he charged you, what did he do? He kept himself on the surface so that I could see him, and he came at me very fast, right at the most vulnerable part of my boat. which, which Interesting was, that they would know that. Right, in the middle, yes. And normally when a whale's swimming, he dives, but he kept himself in full view. And So it was a warning, not... It was a warning, that's right. And I, I had this... Uh, very sharp awareness that I should not accelerate. I just turned and moved away from him. And he instantly dove. The moment I turned away from his family, he dove. You mean you turned around in the boat? I turned, turned the boat sorry, around. Sorry, yes. I turned my boat away from the family and mm -hmm. kept going absolutely 90 degree angle from the family. So it was a communication and, like I got your warning and I'm backing off. Exactly. So he, accomplished and he could. He dove and. I waited, and when he resurfaced, I turned and went parallel to him again and kept exactly that distance. And later in the day, they brought the baby right by the front of my boat, and I was able to get what As I needed. As if to say, you understand. Yes. Or, yes. you know, where we're, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, how interesting. Um, that was, uh, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the whales need from me to feel comfortable, learning whale etiquette. Because when I'm with them, I don't want them worrying about me. I don't want them thinking about me. I want them to trust their children with me, know that when we get to a narrow passage, I will stop and they can go first. Do they recognize you, do you think? Definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. How because, do you know that? Well, because I always come from the same place. I just, I can't expect that a mammal that acoustic with such great mm -hmm. knowledge and memory if would not If our dogs know. can recognize Exactly. Our car doors closing yeah. and our engine. They yes. Can, yeah. So I, I don't want them here. coming up and playing with me. I mean, I, I just want to see them doing their own thing. But I'm quite certain they know my range. They know I turn around when it gets dark. All these things. Interesting. What happened to the young lady who was killed by the orca? How did how did that happen? Um, she slipped in, and they just started playing with her as if she were a seal. And I don't think they actually had any awareness of her as a food item. It was just a toy. And um, she drowned. Did she slip in, like slip and fall in the water, or was she just slipping in to dive and play with uh, her? She fell in. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was very sad. So... Um, so where do you go from here? Well, at the moment, I'm dealing with um, the environmental threats to the whales because an industry moved into my area about five years after I got there and then have subsequently expanded, and it's the salmon farming industry. 
they um, are extremely sloppy and are impacting not only the whales directly, but the whales' food, which is the salmon, the wild salmon. They to, to keep seals away, the salmon farmers started to play extremely loud sounds. Oh, brother. Yeah, to actually hurt their ears, and the whales just left. And because salmon farms only have nets, any viruses, bacteria, or parasites float right through the nets. Float right through the nets. And there's a lot of all of these pathogens because the sam- salmon is designed to travel. Thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of miles. When you put them in high density and make them swim in a circle. This is like taking the cows and putting them on feedlots. That's right. Then you, you have to pump them full of antibiotics and everything it. else to keep them healthy. That's right. So you've loaded these fish with drugs, but they're still contagious. So they're shedding these pathogens, they're being maintained, and then they're entering our food system. Uh, interestingly, the orca don't see them as food. They actually avoid the uh, farm fish in the pens. But I'm trying to get the salmon farmers to either move their farms off of the wild salmon migration routes or into tanks on land and allow the whales to come back into this environment because they displace them from 100 square miles, just like that. And I started thinking, well... Write up an EPA statement and take it to the... uh you know, we're trying to save our salmon. This isn't helping. No, that's right. And actually, Alaska's become a huge ally in this effort um, because these uh, salmon that are being raised are Atlantics, and they're appearing in Alaskan waters and in the Bering Sea. And they're going to push out the Pacific salmon, which is right. a very different species. Alas- yeah. um, Atlantic salmon are extremely aggressive. There's only one salmon in the Atlantic, whereas in the Pacific we have five, some would say six species. <sighs> yeah, no, it's chaos, that's right. But Alaska fortunately takes their wild fish very seriously, and so they're now negotiating as well. And it's, it's tremendous to have Alaska as an ally on this issue. So what I want to do is make the whale's habitat habitable for them again. And then I just want to plunge into a good solid decade of research on their sound. What do you hope to find next? My impression is that if I concentrate long enough and hard enough on these calls, um, looking at what situation they're produced and looking at who's producing them, I'm hoping for an epiphany that I will just suddenly understand where the information is being carried. Because when you approach another language, you can't assume it's a word system. Mm -hmm. You have to keep your mind open to maybe the information is being carried in the space, the silence between the sounds. Or maybe it's if they end their word with an up, or if they end it with a down. We know that means something for us, you know, the up being a question, the down being an affirmative. Um, Or maybe... Maybe the whole thing with them is telepathic and the sound is just something they use to actually perceive the physical environment around them. I don't really know. But what I'm hoping for is suddenly I will go, aha, that's it. And then to work back through that and actually prove what it is I believe to be going on. Have you had any inklings that it could be telepathic in addition to the vocal? I have because myself and most of my colleagues have had experiences with Orca that fling open doors in your mind um, to some kind of non-verbal, non-acoustic communication. There's been situations... Like directed at you or are you just picking up the wavelengths? No, I, I, I don't think I'm perceiving them very well. I'm pretty clumsy, but they seem to be perceiving me. Oh, they're reading your mind. It seems that way. I'm very careful now what I think about <laughs> around whales. And this isn't something I oh, wanted to find out. This is something that, you know, damages a person's help. credibility to talk about. But it's happening. And it's happening to everybody that works with them. Um, there's Give me an example. Well, um, one example was when I came back from British Columbia the first time and I walked up to the tank of the killer whales in the oceanarium and the trainer was standing there and I said, you know, I'd really love it if I could watch you train your whale to do a new behavior. And she said, okay, I'll show you how we do that. But you have to think of a behavior because we basically train them to jump, flop their fins, show their tail. And I said, what about a dorsal fin slap? She goes, well, what's that? And so I visualized in my mind what I'd seen in the wild. And that was where the whales would come up and at the peak of their surfacing, they would roll hard and slap their dorsal fin on the surface. She says, okay, we'll do that. I'll I'll, uh, start that training tomorrow. And away she goes with her buckets of fish. 
and the female killer whale comes up and <laughs> slaps her dorsal fin on the surface and then goes down <laughs> and slaps it again. Now, I've been watching that whale for two and a half years. I'd never seen that. I ran down the stairs. I grabbed that trainer. Her name was Tish. I said, Tish, you got to come and see this. She runs up. What, what, what? And now the whale's really excited, and she's formed this huge wave of her own swimming motion, and she rises to the top of the wave, and she just slaps her dorsal fin. And Tish just looks at me, and she goes, you know, that's whales for you. They do this stuff all the time. And so, you know, there's other experiences I've had as well. And you could be obstinate and say, it didn't happen, didn't happen, didn't happen. It's a coincidence. It's a coincidence. You know, you could chant your way out of this. But I refuse to do that because it does happen. And uh, it happens to people. And it doesn't happen just to you. It happens to everybody. That's right. And it's not just whales. I'm sure a lot of people in the audience are going, oh, yeah, I've had that experience with my dog, my Mm -hmm. my mother, whatever. We limit ourselves to what we perceive. Science likes to limit it. I think the rest of us go around utilizing this acknowledging this, making it a part of our life. Why? Because it's our experience that we cannot doubt. Yeah, and we're just right. waiting for science to catch up if yes. it so chooses. Yes. But it I just don't need the scientific the... good seal of approval to live my life. We just haven't found totally. the tools to measure it. Yeah, I exactly. really think that's all it is because science and is And I think numbers. that when we do find out, we'll discover it's natural. It's nothing esoteric. We don't have to bring any factor X's in. We just need to expand our own understanding yeah. of what's here and think of the fun we could have with that you oh, know yeah. i just i mean we love to communicate so i i really think it would open more doors and that's why i think we need to listen to other animals and try to understand their communication because they're all specialists in different ways and i'm sure we can learn a lot from them we've been talking to ourselves a long time <laughs> <laughs> let's open up the uh, conversation because exactly. we'll always learn something new yeah and uh, thank you so much for sharing your life story. And You're so welcome. The insights from your, your fascinating and decades of work here. <laughs> Thanks, Lorelei. Tell me about your um, children's story, because all of us have either children or friends who have children. And books right. are such a wonderful gift to share. Just quickly. Uh, yeah, Sweetie, my first, very first book is, uh, it's called Sweetie, A Whale Story, and it's published by Orca Books. And it's the story of one young whale. And the, the events in the book didn't all happen to her, but they're all things that I've seen. So, so it's a composite story. That's right. And I yeah. take you inside the whale's head and her own thoughts and what she might be thinking. And then the second book I wrote is called In the Company of Whales from the Diary of a Whale Watcher. And these are actual excerpts from my journal and take you through the year in the life of the whales that I'm working with. Well, this is wonderful also to give children that bridge to bring them into your work. And uh, Yes, because they really are our hope. You know, I think that our generation um, are seeing the light. We're going to slow down some of our destructive practices. But the children that are coming on right now are going to do amazing things. So give them some early tools to yeah. to work with. Thank you so much. Those are Alexandra's two children's books and also listening to whales. Thank you for listening. I'm Laura Lee. This has been Conversation for Exploration, and I want to thank you for joining us on our tour around the universe at large here tonight. And join us next time. I'm Laura Lee.